I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire to sign up today. And now to our conversation. Midterms 2014 are just around the corner. And for Republicans, it seems the voting can't come soon enough. State by state, poll by poll, the GOP appears to pick up steam by the day. They can almost taste Senate control. Are the appearances true? Might there even be a Republican wave, or with so many close races, could the whole thing go into overtime? Which key races in the Senate and the House should we make sure to watch? David King is senior lecturer in public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He directed the Task Force on Election Administration for the National Commission on Election Reform following the 2000 presidential elections, and he recently hosted a conversation on the upcoming midterms. David, thanks for joining me. Is it over? Do we need to tune in on Tuesday night? Uh, You'll be tuning in Tuesday night. You'll be watching Wednesday morning. Uh, sure, some people think it looks like a wave right now, but uh, absolutely not. There's no national movement in towards one direction or another. We have a lot of state-by-state races. It's going to come down to the wire in some key states, possibly like Georgia, possibly down in Louisiana, which might go into overtime. Long time to count the votes up in Alaska. We're not going to know, uh, probably not going to know who controls the Senate um, by breakfast time on, on Wednesday morning. But I, it depends on when you eat breakfast, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an early eater, so I guess not, not for me, but uh, maybe out in the West, in the West Coast, if, you know, late breakfast eater will get it. So are, are those really the states? So those are the states where, you know, Georgia, Louisiana, Alaska, states where, you, and, and frequently talked about potential uh, runoffs. Are, are those therefore the states that you are watching, or are you maybe kind of watching other states because you have in the back of your mind, okay, if, if, if X state, New Hampshire, for example, happens to go to Brown, then that's really a sign for me. And sure, even if something like Georgia or Louisiana goes into overtime, I will I will have a strong sense because of what's happening in New Hampshire or, or, or Arkansas or Colorado, pick another state. Is that how you're personally looking at it? Or are you thinking, nope, it's going to, you know, it really might come down to these potential runoffs? No, Chris, it's not. It's because there's no national wave out there. It's a off-year election. There's no president at the top of the ticket. Uh, this isn't a referendum on Obama or anything else in particular. It's an election that was set up for the Republicans to win because all these folks were elected six years ago during a real Democratic wave. And you have oh, at least six senators who probably are oops, didn't mean to actually win. I mean, I, so the, the Democrats uh, go into this with an expectation of, of losses, but again, it's state by state. There's no national movement, so I don't think there's a bellwether uh, election. I, I, you know, mentioned a, a place like New Hampshire, which is so close, and we're getting all their campaign commercials, and we're watching it fairly carefully. If uh, Scott Brown 
defeats Gene Shaheen up in New Hampshire, it means that Scott Brown won. It doesn't say anything else about any kind of a national movement. It might give us an indication for how New Hampshire's thinking about things as they move into their role as, uh, you know, first in the nation primary. It'll be fun to watch what's going to happen uh, over in Iowa because there you have a tremendously strong ground game in Iowa where the Republican Party's doing a great job uh, trying out their training wheels uh, with door-to-door and, you know, the, the super PACs and <laughs> uncoordinated, coordinated groups. Um, working very hard for Joni Ernst. So Iowa, I'm looking at a, a you know a first run at the presidential 2016 happening there. Uh, so you go state by state; they're all fascinating races. If you're a political junkie, what a fix we're getting right now! Yeah, it's it's an incredible time. Let, let me ask you. Let me start with New Hampshire purely because you're you're so close and you are seeing the ads. You know, it, me being a little bit further away and and others listening who uh, you know might be even you know more distant than you are. Um, it, you know, it's been a bit of a surprise to see you know Scott Brown coming up stronger than maybe was expected two, three, six months ago. Is that the sense that you're getting? And do you you know what what's the why behind it? Well, there's no one in Massachusetts uh, who underestimates Scott Brown. Uh, he ran a terrific cam- when, campaign when he first ran for the Senate. He surprised everybody. Uh, and then he ran a very poor campaign when he lost uh, the reelect just two years ago. So I don't think many people around here were surprised that Scott Brown is a terrific retail campaigner. Uh, if anything, we're a little surprised at the amount of outside money that's coming into the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, it's carpet bombing, absolutely, with campaigns, but on both sides of it. But when, when we think about Scott Brown in Massachusetts, you know, fine, Scott Brown was defeated by Elizabeth Warren two years ago, but that's not really what happened. Scott Brown lost. Right? It's not that Elizabeth Warren won as much as Scott Brown lost. And if we remember those polls going into the last 10 days of that campaign two years ago, Scott Brown was up. Uh, and he lost in the last 10 days um, suburban moms, suburban moms who thought that he, he, he started to look kind of mean. Uh, and they went from imagining Scott Brown as this man that they admire, they maybe wished that they had married, to seeing him as um, the first husband they were glad that they divorced. And the numbers <laughs> changed on a dime for Scott Brown. Uh, there's a little bit of that meanness that's come into Scott Brown's uh, ad libs just in the last week. And uh, if he turns mean again, first, it means he can't help himself. And second, he's going to learn lose suburban moms once again. Uh, so Scott Brown lost the last time out. Elizabeth Warren was fortunate. And uh, this time around, we'll see if Scott Brown can sort of stick close to the game and try and smile like an affable guy. Just you know, you just got to do it for another couple of days, Scott. You know, just just smile a little bit longer, right? That's I mean, right. You would you would think he would he'd be able to keep that up. I, to pick, I want to pick up on on one of the, the things you said earlier, which you know runs a little bit counter to I think to to at least some of the commentary that I'm hearing elsewhere. So I'd love to to get your views on it. I, and this is your your point that it's not a national referendum, which I, I I do hear from a lot of folks, and and I think there's consensus around that. Um, but but the Obama factor, um, which is, you know, if it's not necessarily relevant, it's certainly always fun to talk about. Um, his numbers are so low. And in particular, 
particularly, you know, many of these key states that we're watching, Georgia, Louisiana, um, uh, Arkansas, his popularity, I mean, he's doing so badly that while on the one hand, I, I hear you, it's not a national referendum, there's not a presidential campaign, you know, we, we don't have, you know, the national party setting an agenda across all 50 states, um, you know, are, is, is Obama a non-factor, less of a factor than maybe others are saying, or did I just totally mangle and misunderstand what you said earlier in the conversation? No, I don't think you misunderstood what I said. I, you know, Obama's not on the, on the ticket, and you have senators who have been running away from Obama for six years. And when's the last time you saw Mark, Mark Pryor run around saying, hey, thank goodness, I was elected on the same ticket at the same time that Barack Obama was six years ago. Uh, Mark Pryor has been running away from Barack Obama for six years. Mary Landro in Louisiana has been running even faster and even farther away from Barack Obama for the last six years. So uh, it's interesting, though, for example, in Louisiana, that Mary Landro is still possibly in play. It, it may, of course, go to a, a runoff, but at least she's not completely gone. Tom Cotton seems to have grown a personality, uh, seems a lot warmer now than he did a few months ago, and he's a terrific candidate. What a great resume, and so I think he's going to uh, do just fine against Mark Pryor. But Mark Pryor was one of those, oops, how did I win uh, candidates who, who got through during the Obama wave six years ago. So if you think state by state, uh, they're very, very interesting races. Um, you know, it looks like South Dakota's probably done. Uh, Larry Pressler's starting to fade. That has nothing to do with Barack Obama. Uh, North Carolina Senate, uh, it's fascinating that that may really actually be in play, thanks to a, a libertarian who's, who's making a decent showing. Uh, so Kay Hagan might uh, pull that out and continue to hold strong. Um, and then you have a wonderful place like Kansas. That's not about a Barack Obama. There isn't even a Democrat on the ticket. Uh, it's partly just fatigue with Pat Roberts, who no one's entirely sure where he lives or what he's done, other than look like an incumbent forever, uh, and a very strong, terrific, telegenic, smart, independent Greg Orman. Um, that's that's going to be a fun race to watch, partly because we don't know what the role of independents are going to be. Compare, you know, pair him with Angus King and, and see what kind of a mess he can make of things. Yeah, the whole caucus question. Uh, do you see any sense where uh, the, the caucus aspect ends up being what turns this? Or, uh, I mean, obviously in, in, in Kansas they've said, well, you know, wh whichever way the election goes, that's who we're going to caucus with. But, but do you, do, is the caucus element something that could be a factor in terms of uh, determining control uh, from where you sit? Uh, you mean from the point of view of voters? Um, voters aren't thinking about things like caucuses. Uh, they're judging one candidate at a time on election day. The, you know, the folks in Kansas are partly uh, thinking about election day as uh, trash day, and they're trying to figure out whether they want to throw Pat Roberts in the trash heap or put him in the recycling bin and let him have another shot at it. Uh, so uh, some of this is simply a, a, a repudiation of Pat Roberts, who barely got by a, a tough primary and then kind of went to sleep for a while. Um, so, but I think the, for inside baseball, you know, the, the question of what do the independents do is fascinating, right? So Angus King could do anything he wants. Yep. He caucused with the Democrats last time around, but he's clearly more moderate than most of the caucus. Uh, Greg Orman, who's he going to vote for? Right? He can caucus with one side or another, but who's going to vote for for leader? 
what's he going to demand if he ends up being a tiebreaker? What if you have Angus King and Greg Orman and a real sense in the American public that we're sick and tired of this party politics? Then is there another Republican who might jump ship, who might join with Orman or join with Angus King and say, let's caucus together and come up with a new structure? It's entirely possible. Not likely, but it's entirely possible. So if Orman wins, the fun game is going to see be you know, what happens to a couple of those Republican moderates or some of those Democrat moderates. Do they think it's time to uh, put a stick of dynamite in the old party structure and see what they can do with a governing coalition at the center? It'll be fun. And have you put your neck out there? Do you have you kind of gone on record? And if not, let me you know give you the opportunity uh, to you know really you know make a statement that's being recorded and uh, will be sitting there whether you're right or not. Uh, it, you know what do you think is going to happen? Do you do you have a sense? And, and I mean Senate control. What I think is going to happen is that we're going to be stuck with partisan gridlock from now into the into the distant future. Uh, and I think the Republicans are probably going to control the Senate. And I think we're headed towards two dismal years of a basically dormant um, domestic president uh, waiting for things to get better. And then in 2016, you have a whole lot of Republicans up in the Senate. The, the field looks really good for the Democrats, and you play this crazy game again. That's what I think is going to happen. But if you asked me, you know, three months ago, do I think um, do I think the Royals are going to win the the World Series? Well, I would have said yes, and I would have been would have been wrong. Um, I think I think in this case um, there is a chance of something particularly interesting happening. Notice where Greg Orman uh, campaigned recently. Uh, I'm sorry, notice where Angus King campaigned recently. He's been saying nice things about the likes of um, Lamar Alexander. has a good working relationship with, um, with Senator Collins. You know, there are people in the Senate who have been acting more outrageously partisan than they really are, who've had to play to a base that they don't really like. Uh, Somebody like Lamar Alexander, who was a terrific governor, who really knows how to govern, is now stuck in a ridiculously partisan institution, can't get much done at all. He's not in favor with the leadership. I don't know. If I, if I were Angus King or Greg Orman, I would be wanting to talk with somebody like Lamar Alexander. What does that mean? It's a, it's a bet. It's maybe my guess would be you know, 20%, something like that happens. 20% is a heck of a lot more than nothing. And what about the House? Uh, any chance that the Republicans set themselves a record there? Are there are there any bellwether races on the House side that you're particularly watching? No, I don't think so. The House is really fun to watch because there's so many interesting personal stories. And, you know, when, when somebody gets up to run for Senate, they're kind of polished and, and – you know, you get you get a terrific candidate like Tom Cotton, or you get somebody like Bill Cassidy running for Senate. These are terrific candidates. On the House side, it's just an awful lot more fun to watch because you get you get some crazies on the left and some some crazies on the right, uh, and it's just more entertaining. Um, but but that said, the Republicans are going to pick up seats in the House. Um, you know, the toss-up states in the House or the toss-up districts in the House are overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, there are very few, even mildly uh, endangered Republicans. 
Um, and some of the districts that might switch are ones that aren't going to be all that surprising. So from, from our seat, we're watching people who are friends of the school who we've had around these halls, like young Elise Stefanik, a Republican running up in the 21st district uh, in New York, uh, up against Aaron Wolf, who's not necessarily from the district, has a whole lot of money, and then you have a Green Party candidate making things a little messier up there. It's been fun to watch Elise Stefanik run. I think she's going to win that race. It'll be a very nice pickup. That's uh, that's Bill Owens' current district, so Republicans pick up a nice little district there. And then you have some party royalty. You have, uh, you know, Gwen Graham's running. Uh, it's out in the second district, right, in Florida. And she that could be a pickup for the Democrats right there. Out in Colorado, um, with uh, two just terrific people. When you look at their records, you spend time and and listen to them. Mike Hoffman's a, a really solid uh, representative, does his homework, thinks things through. And then Andrew Romanoff, who's the Democrat challenger, I think that's probably too close to call. Uh, he's bright, young, energetic, uh, really two terrific candidates. So I kind of I'm going to be cherry-picking that night, um, watching these races and trying to understand the personal stories behind them all. It's a triumph for every one of these candidates to win, and we're really excited about it for them because they have a heck of a challenge ahead of them. From where you sit and the way you pay attention to various races, do do you see kind of ahead of time, a couple of years out in, in advance, you know, particularly on the House side, wait a minute, this is someone who I really can see, you know, making a Senate run at some point or, or is going to going to be something. I mean, you, you talk, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the, the way you think about these stories and, and their, their personal stories. And you talk about a Tom Cotton as well. It, do you do you see those things coming to four, six years in advance? Or you just kind of focus on the, the key races at, at the time? Well, we have the new members of Congress program uh, here at the Kennedy School. Yeah. Harvard has run it since 1972. I've been involved with it since 1992. And so we've seen a lot of new members come and go. Uh, four years ago, of course, it was the Tea Party, um, the big emergence of the Tea Party. And, uh, and yet we had them come to the program. We certainly expect the Democrats and Republicans to be here that first week of December. So we have a really up-close and personal look at these new members. And what's interesting is watching how other new members treat their colleagues. Uh, and after a couple of days, there's a dynamic that emerges. You can see who they're turning to, who they're listening to. Who, when somebody speaks, everybody kind of gets quiet. Uh, you can you can see when somebody speaks and everybody else kind of, there's this instinctive eye roll. That's pretty meaningful. Hmm. And... Um, yeah, before they've even taken the oath of office, there are a handful of legislators every year who you say, pay attention, this, this, this person really has it. What was Tom Cotton like when he was there? Um, Do you recall? No, I don't. I, re- I remember Tom Cotton from when he was a law student. Wow. Uh, yeah, here. yeah, yeah. And... Um, because you're right about his resume. His resume is extraordinary, and, and he, he stumbled a bit at the beginning of that campaign. Obviously, now, as you noted, he's, he's come on. He's been coming on strong, and, and you know a lot of the reports of him as a campaigner have, have been terrific. Um, so, no, you know, given where you were going on, on that, I'd be fascinated to know. Uh, no, I, I, what I remember about Tom Cotton, but this is now, uh, what, 12 years ago when yeah. he was here as a student, 
um, was that he had kind of that, he had a military warmth even then, mm. <laughs> a, a rigidity about him that made sense, a kind of discipline for mm. that part of his career that made a whole lot of sense. Um, I remember, uh, no, it wasn't all that long ago, there were just two new members who stood out, and uh, and then two years later we asked them to come back and, and brief everybody on what it was like for their first two years. It was Steve Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Eric Cantor. And you knew it from day one. Other people didn't know who they were. I didn't know who they were. But the moment Steve Israel and Eric Cantor came into the room, Democrats and Republicans alike turned and they said, that's really, that's really somebody. Um, it's, it's fun to, to watch that happen. Um, there was a little bit of that in 2010 with the Tea Party uh, class. But what was more fascinating in 2010 was just how wide-eyed and excited and enthusiastic they were. And uh, to have the young Tea Party representatives here was just fabulous. Um, Well-meaning, obviously naive in many respects, but they brought an energy that, that was breathtaking. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a terrific program, and, and uh, yeah, I'm certainly aware that uh, that's something that, that you and, and the others have done there for years. It's a, it's a, a terrific program. Um, turning quickly, I, you just do it with the time we have left. Um, I should, I should ask you quickly about the governor's races, and you're, you're sitting in Massachusetts. Um, you might have a Republican governor, huh? Well, it sure looks like it. Uh, even the Boston Globe came out and supported a uh, Republican for governor, which is a bit of a surprise. Yeah, uh, yeah save the that. polling yeah. has him, depending on what poll you look at, but it looks like he's up around five points. Uh, there isn't quite the enthusiasm door-to-door for the Democrats that we've seen in the past. Uh, there's a heck of a good campaign team put together door-to-door for Elizabeth Warren. It was anticipated that, that some of that passion might uh, pass on to uh, Martha Coakley, but it really hasn't. And it's in some ways for the Democrats a shame because Martha Coakley uh, has proven herself to be a very compelling uh, candidate. She's, she's done a great job door-to-door. She's done a great job in the debates. Um, but so has Charlie Baker. And so the, the, it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, I think much of this is going to come down to what the turnout looks like in the urban areas, and if if Boston turns out big, if Cambridge turns out big, if Springfield somehow gets their act together and turns out big, and Lowell and Lawrence, then she's in it. Um, but if this is another suburban off-year election, Charlie Baker's in uh, is going to be in the governor's office. And, and just to close out, David, and you, you kind of referred to this a little bit earlier, um, 2016, and just thinking about how, what we're going through now, is is this, are we simply kind of setting the stage? And on some level, it kind of, you know, depresses me. It feels like, we, you know, sometimes the, the midterm election and, and elections in general feel, you know, that like in their worst case, they can be, you know, too much about simply setting the table for the next election as opposed to, you know, okay, what policies, what are we actually going to do to move this country forward in the next two to four years? Now that I've taken off my, you know, uh, uh, naive and, and really, you know, optimistic hat and, and thinking about the, the realities, is, is there anything that you are seeing? Is this, you know, in terms of setting the trend for 
2016? Is there, you know, anything that you're kind of looking at and saying, okay, you know, this is making me think about where things are going to be going uh, for the for the big one then? Yeah, there are a couple things. First, the Republicans should not have to fight this hard to take back the Senate in a year when the table was set up so cleanly for them. To think that you actually might have a, a Democratic pickup in a state like uh, Georgia, they're kind of crazy. Um, so if they don't win on Tuesday, uh, I think that's extremely bad sign for the Republicans, and they're going to be in some, some bit of a disarray. So we're going we're gonna to watch that, obviously, very carefully. There's a, a report that came out, I think, two days ago from the Institute of Politics. It's a poll that is done of young people, yes. terrifically yeah. well done, poll yes. done by Social Sphere Strategies uh, through the Institute of Politics. Uh, very interesting that uh, young people are, uh, they're not fixed, obviously, in terms of their partisanship. They think of themselves as independents. And they are so angry about the system, but they're still engaged. And if we have two more years of just ridiculous partisan gridlock and posturing getting ready for a presidential, when we don't even have any idea who the candidates are really going to be, if that's what happens, I I imagine young people really moving towards some kind of uh, an independent movement, an independent sets of candidates, if that happens at the Senate level, yeah, and that would be terrific, and, and you can blow, blow things open there. We're surrounded by young people in Cambridge, and there's an energy there and a disappointment, and um, I, I'm going to be watching that very, very carefully. Yeah, we, and, and this, the, the most recent report, this is out of uh, John Delavope's group, is that right? right? Yeah, so, yeah, so John he was... Terrific. So, so he was a guest on this show um, several months ago, and I, I couldn't agree more. The, the work that he does and that they do, yeah, I would encourage anyone uh, uh, to go take a look at that in their most recent um, uh, report as well. Uh, they, they are taking just an incredible look at uh, um, what goes on with, with young people. Uh, David King is senior lecturer in public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he warns us, uh, take your breakfast late on Wednesday. Uh, because that's probably how long it's going to take the least before we know uh, what's happening uh, with midterms 2014. David, thank you so much for your time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.